Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. Well, as I mentioned, we are going to be looking at um, two things which uh, we would call ordinances. As I said, some, some churches may call them sacraments, and there's reasons why um, we kind of use the word ordinances versus sacrament. Um, I'm not getting into all of that right now, but the Catholic Church uses the term sacrament uh, as a, a, a way that really conveys uh, actual grace. In other words, um, Catholicism basically teaches that when you're baptized, grace is given to you, um, that you're in a state of grace at that point. And we look, at least in, in our belief, based on what we see Scripture teach, is that that's not how we see it. We believe that um, baptism is an act of what has happened to you uh, once, once you become a believer. And so um, we believe in baby dedications, uh, honoring things that way, but, but that we don't believe that baptism confers a, a state of grace to us. It is something that, that we enter into when we come to know Christ and are born again, and then we get baptized as a, sign, as a symbol of what's happened to us. So one of the ways that we could look at this um, thing called ordinances or sacraments is that it is a a ritual, and I don't use that term um, to, to downplay it. It's, it's an act, a ritual action undertaken by Christ, the Christian church that are used to understand visible signs of invisible grace. In other words, something happens to us and we become a believer, and, and that's an invisible thing. No one knows what happens in my heart. That's between God and I, and, and you may see the fruit of that a little bit. And then God gives us uh, an ordinance to do. He tells us what to do. He tells us to get baptized, for instance. That's the visible sign of the invisible thing that's happened in me. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at those two things of baptism, communion. Now, we'll tell you right now that uh, sometimes you're going to hear me probably use the word communion. Sometimes I'm going to say the Lord's Supper. Those are interchangeable. Um, communion has been used over the years because it, it, um, it's a word that talks about community and fellowship, koinonia, uh, a deep fellowship with one another. Um, the Lord's Supper was used very early on because many of the early church, um, they actually had a meal before they would celebrate it. Was, it was kind of a picture of the Passover because they would have a Seder meal when they would celebrate Passover. And so in the early church, many of them would, would have a meal, a fellowship meal, and then they would celebrate at the end of that meal uh, the, the communion. And so most people don't do that anymore. Most churches don't do that anymore. We just celebrate communion in our services. And so you're going to hear those words interchangeable a little bit. All right, a couple things about these two ordinances that we're going to talk about. And first of all, why are, why are we going to talk about them? Uh, because these are beautiful gifts that God has given the church. And, and, and we want to make sure that we're, um, we understand what they are. We understand the purpose of them. We understand uh, the reverence that we should have for them. Uh, and the significance, I think, that they can play in the lives of believers and the life of the church. Um, so what are some things that are common about these two things? 
baptism and the Lord's Supper or communion. The two things that I think are are common about them is that they both point to Christ's death and resurrection. So when we put someone under the water, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more in detail, but when we put someone under the water, uh, it signifies that there's a death. And that when we bring someone up out of the water, because we baptize by immersion, it's the significance of being raised from the dead. Thus, the death and resurrection. When we think about communion, not all of us think about it that same way, but when we think about taking of the bread and the juice, the, sometimes they use wine or grape juice, uh, signifies the blood. What are we saying is, is that there's been a death. A body's been broken and blood has been shed and there's been a death. And so we get the death piece in communion. Sometimes we don't get the resurrection. But we'll see here in a little bit that several of the passages that, that talks about this, and even Jesus mentions it when he shares it with them, is that he says, I will not drink of this new wine until my time in the kingdom. And so really what he's referring to is here is his, his second coming when the church, he will, he will unite the church, he will pull the church into heaven, and that there will be this great marriage banquet, and that is a picture of the resurrection and ultimately eternity. And so we're going we're gonna to take a look at those things. And, and so that's one thing that both of these have in common. Um, it, they both also remind us, obviously, in that picture of the resurrection, of, of a hope that we have in Christ. In other words, that, that yes, we're sinful, we will die, but we will be resurrected with Christ. Yes, Jesus is dead, and, and we're going to have the, the breaking of the bread, and he's shedding his blood, but he didn't stay dead, and he promises that, that we will be part of the bride in heaven. So there's, there's these two things that are happening. There's this understanding of what happened in the death, but there's also this picture of the resurrection. So that being said, uh, I want to kind of sum it up here for you as we start with a big idea. God instituted baptism and communion as a physical reminder of his unfathomable grace. Let me read that again. God instituted. God decided in his plan before time to give his church these physical things, institute these physical things, baptism, communion, as reminders to us of his grace. And I just put in unfathomable. I could put amazing. I could put loving. But unfathomable grace, because I think it's unfathomable that God would come and die for us, his creation. And so if God has given us these things, he's given them to the church, and I would argue that these are the two primary things that he's given to his church that, that are a physical act. Yes, we can worship. That's very important. We confess our sins. But these are these are. You could call them rituals. These are acts. These are things that we do. And what's you, one of the things that's important about to recognize about these things is that these are things that, that I don't perform per se. The, 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 the priesthood or the, the pastoral or leadership does. You participate in these things. Every member of the church that's a true born-again believer should get baptized. Every member of the church that's a born-again believer in its confession and regenerated in their heart should share and come to the Lord's table and partake. This isn't, there's no favoritism here. There's no special thing for the pastor or anything like this. This is for the body of Christ. And God has given it to us for many good reasons. And we're going to take a look at a couple of those. 
The next thing, though, I want to share about both of these things, though, that I think is another thing that's important to recognize is that they are both public demonstrations of a person's full dependence upon Christ. They're both public, right? These are not things we do in secret. I know some people, um, and I love you if you're one of these people, well, can I get baptized like on a Tuesday night with my life group? Because I don't want to be in front of everybody. I I get that. But the answer is almost always no, right? Um, can Can I take communion just by myself? Um, well, you could. Sometimes, and, and we used to, you know, churches do this. If, if you go and visit someone in the hospital and they want to celebrate communion, I still will do that. But that's not really what communion is about. It's about being with the body of Christ. It's, it's not a, a last rite. It's not something that needs to happen before you. It's not going to have any effect on if you die, if this is going to be in a, a good place or not. It's going to absolve you of any sins that have happened. That's, that's very uh, Catholic in its way. No, this is a, a thing that we've been given as a church to call us to remember something incredibly important. And why is that important? Why are these public things that we both need to be involved in or all of us need to be involved in? Because we quickly want to be pulled, our flesh wants to be pulled into the world. We want to forget the importance of the, of the what? Of the death. Of the resurrection. We, we, we just, I mean, how many times, and, and I, you know, we can do it here. So even as pastors, sometimes we think, you know what? Gosh, I've been talking about the death and resurrection for like weeks now. I need to talk about something else. And next thing you know, whole churches will begin to teach on moral things and, and good things. And sometimes they even leave Scripture and talk about how to have a better marriage, how to all do this stuff. And that's all fine and dandy, but we've left the death and resurrection. Notice the thing that God gives us. The two things he gives us are pointing to that. To remind us all the time, this is what the whole Christian faith hinges on. This is what it matters whether you're going to, Believe in me or not, because this is the thing that I've done to redeem mankind. And that is incredibly important. And so, I want to just talk about these two things in our time remaining. So what is, what would be a definition possibly of water baptism? And and this is a very high level, uh, simple definition. Water baptism, because we're going to talk about a couple of kinds of baptism. But water baptism is a one-time act that publicly acknowledges the new birth of a believer in Christ. It's a one-time act that publicly, not private, acknowledges the new birth of a believer in Christ. Now, I want to say a couple things about that. We already kind of talked about the public piece. We, are, we try and do that very publicly. We ask people to do a testimony video because it's not just about um, being put in the water, what really matters is what is God doing in you and we want to hear your testimony at some level, right? And I know some people say, well, I don't want to do that. Well, look, we, we put you in a little tiny room with Pastor Brian. He's a really great guy and uh, he just talks to you and we film it and, you, and he can edit that. Um, because if, if, if Christ has died for us, we have to be in to grow into the maturity to say, then I need to share that with somebody. And if you can't share it with a group of people who love you, are like-minded for the most part, and what you believe, how are we ever going to share it with a world that may be hostile to that news? 
And our job as pastors and elders is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. It is not to make a place for you to come and to sit and to soak up. No, it's, it's here to, to say, no, here's what, here's what we want to encourage you with so that you can go out there and you can share the gospel. And so we want to help train you and equip you and encourage you to be able to share your testimony and share your faith. It's a public demonstration of your faith. Because when you live out your life, it's public. Being a Christian is not a hidden secret in the world, right? We should live it publicly. Now, many of us as Christians... We kind of do hide in our faith in some ways, right? And, I, and I, I struggle with that sometimes. Sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm not the first one to say, oh, yeah, um, I want to share Jesus with you right now. I'm a Christian, right? Um, there's a challenge sometimes. I, I, I think about it. I was at the doctor's office the other day, a, a heart patient. Or I was a, I'm a heart patient, so I was at my doctor's office. And, and um, there was a, a nurse that I've been seeing for a long time before, you know, she takes your blood pressure and all that stuff before the doctor comes in. And, and we got to talking, and I don't know where the conversation went, but... Next thing you know, we were kind of talking about the world and, and her granddaughter and social media and, and just, and I'm like, okay, I can see that she needs hope. <laughs> like, and so I began to just talk to her about the gospel. And I felt a little like, I'm talking about Jesus with her, right? And you know what was so cool when, when I got done? She says, I always look forward when you come in. She says, you're always so encouraged. I said, it's not me. It's the hope we have in Christ, Right? But, you know, even for me, that's a challenge sometimes. I've thought about sharing it with my family doctor. I, I've, I've tried to rehearse it in my head. You know, you want to rehearse it in your head a little bit. And he's a great guy. I've been seeing him for 30 years. And I, I'm, I'm, like, I'm rehearsing it. And I don't know if this works or not, but I'm thinking, I want to say, you know, doctor, I'm, you've been taking care of me for 30 years. Like, you're the one that figured out that heart disease and, and got me, you know, got me stents and did all that stuff. And, and I, I think I, I need to help. I'm going to talk to you about something. Where are you going to spend eternity? Do you, do, you have a, do you have a relationship with Christ? I mean, you're my doctor, and I want to help you, right? Now, I don't know if I'll do that because i got a doctor's appointment coming up here real soon. In fact, it's this month. So be praying for me that God will give me an opening to be able to share the gospel with him, right? And maybe he's a believer. I don't know. He's never acknowledged that. He's never said that, but I've never asked. So, so it's a public thing. It's a one-time public thing. And so when I say it's... It's a one-time thing. I just want to share a little bit about this. I know some people get baptized when they're like 10 and 12 and, or 14, and, and, and all of a sudden you're 30, and, and now you've found a church, and, and you're really just soaking up the gospel, and you're soaking up scripture, and you're fellowshipping, and you're just kind of on fire for the Lord. And, and you come to your pastor, and you say, well, I want to get baptized. And I said, well, have you ever been baptized? Well, yeah, I was 14. I said, well, okay, why do you want to get rebaptized? Well, I just... I just really, like, I, I know more now. I'm like, okay. Well, in 10 years, you're going to know more, I hope. You're going to want baptized again? Well, no, I just, you know, and I said, so well, wait a minute. I mean, like, let me ask. So when you were 14, did you feel that you had been born again, that you were in Christ, that you had believed and were saved? Well, yeah. I said, then you don't need to get rebaptized. And people have a hard time with that because they're so excited. They want to show a demonstration of their love for the Lord and they want to do it again because they know more. They're just, they're there now. And I'm saying, no. Now, if you tell me that you were 10 and you just did it because your brother Johnny got baptized and your mom and dad were pressuring you and you had no idea what the heck you were doing and now you've come to know Christ, absolutely, we will, we will baptize you. But if you were 10 or 12 years old and you really know in your heart that you had given your life to Christ, you just didn't understand all the depths of the, the scripture and the gospel, and heck, nobody does. 
then, then no need to get rebaptized. Um, and we walk through a lot of that with a lot of people because that's what they want. They want to be able to do that. So why do we get baptized? You ever think about that? Why do we do that? Why is this, this sacrament, why is this um, ordinance, this ritual, whatever you call it, why, why do we do it? Because Jesus commands it. It's that simple. We can go all through Scripture in the book of Acts, and we can see all sorts of places where people get baptized. They come to know Christ. They get baptized. Um, obviously, Paul gets baptized after he comes to know Christ and, and, and by Ananias and that whole situation there. So there's all these pictures of it. And we could say, oh, that's good, that's good. But where does all that originate? It originates because Jesus commands it. Now, I will tell you that, that um, there is history all the way back in the Old Testament of pictures of it in ceremonial washings. The priest would wash and, and symbolically kind of cleanse themselves before they would go into the, to the tabernacle. And that was all a picture. And, and God was trying to teach the priest and teach mankind that you are sinful. It had, it does, it's not bap, baptism the way we see it today, but it was a picture that we needed to be cleansed. Baptism is a picture that we've been cleansed by Christ, by accepting and walking in faith in him. And so why do we get baptized? Because he commands it. So where does he command it? The Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Jesus says, Now go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, right? Half of that text is about baptism. The thing when Jesus gets to the end of his life, the thing that he leaves with his church is to go make disciples and baptize them. There's this physical act to say, after you've discipled them, after you've shared the gospel, when they come to faith, do this right? Do this. Help them have a public profession of their faith. And it says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Well, one of the things that he's teaching us that we should be teaching people to observe that he's commanded us is that you should get baptized. So I've said this many times. I'll say it again. Today, you may be sitting here and you believe that you're a born-again believer, and and I, I trust that's true. If you, so you, you know, if, that's, if God is, um, if you're in Christ and you feel you've been born again, but you've never been baptized, I really just want to ask you, why? What is stopping you? Is it fear? Is, is it something that says, well, I, I don't know that I'm supposed to? I just told you that Jesus commands it. I, I think that's pretty clear, Right? Go there and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what the church is commissioned and commanded to do. And as a believer, that's what you're to do. In fact, we can go through the book of Acts, we can see multiple places where that's exactly what Peter, what Paul tells new believers. You should get baptized. We think about the story of Philip with the eunuch. Right? He's reading Isaiah, talks to Philip, he comes to know Christ, he believes, and he sees the water and he says, well, why shouldn't I get baptized? And Philip says, absolutely, you should right now. And he goes and he gets baptized, right? There's this act of obedience that when we come to know Christ, God says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to sh- demonstrate your affection, your faith, and your love for me. 
in your obedience. It's, it's a step that we take to just validate that, even in our own minds sometimes. We, sometimes we say, well, I, I should do this, and I don't. Well, God is saying, no, you need to do this, and I want you to do this. I want you to show me that you do love me. And actually, he does that for us so that it helps us understand that we have made a profession, that there is something that's happened to us, right? There is. So why do we do that? Because he's commanded it. Now, what must take place before we get baptized? Right? I had um, everybody that wants to get baptized, we sit down with them, we talk to them. I had a guy come up to me after first service, and uh, he was very gracious. And uh, I've been wondering what's going on, and he's been coming for a long time. I, he's, he's told me he loves the Lord. I've talked to him a couple times, but he's never got baptized. And he came to me, and he said, okay, that was the best informational service I've ever heard on those two things, and I'm ready. And he says, what's next? What do I need to do? What, where do I need to be? And that's a great question. I said, well, we need to sit down and talk. That's what we do with everybody. Because why? Because we want to make sure that you understand the gospel and that we believe that you have been truly born again, that you're truly regenerate. And so what must take place before somebody gets water baptized? Well, in our text today, in, a, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38 through 41, what does Peter say? It says, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. All right, so I want to break that down a little bit. What is he saying here? He says, okay, repent. What does that mean? It means turn away from your sinful life. So when we come to Christ, we have to say, okay, am I going to give up my life, my, my fleshly desires and follow Christ? Okay, that means I'm going to turn and I'm going to repent from my life. Now, the only way that we can truly do that is if we become born again. If Christ comes and, and has the Holy Spirit within us and we become a new creation in Christ and we turn, our heart changes, right? God does that. He makes us alive with him. And so this idea, repent, and then what? This idea of believing. Repent means that I'm, I need to believe because I'm going to repent. i got to believe in what I'm going to do. I'm going to follow Jesus. I need to believe that he really died and, and rose from the dead and, and that he really can save me of my sins and he really is God. I need to believe all that. And not only do I need to believe it, I need to trust it. Believing it intellectually is not enough. I say that all the time. I need to trust it. And so I turn from my sin. I believe. Once that happens, what then we're to do? And be baptized. It's the immediate thing. Every one of you, not some of you, not only males, not only children, every one of you, when you repent and believe and put your hope in Christ, you should get baptized. And here he's talking about water baptism. Okay? And it goes on there and it says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, the gift of the Holy Spirit does not come when you get baptized. The gift of the Holy Spirit comes when you repent and believe. The Holy Spirit comes and takes residence in your life and you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Right? Just get, just get it in the order. And then he goes on, he says, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all those who are far off. So this is a promise that's been made available. The gospel's been made available. There's a promise of salvation for those that will repent and believe, right? For you and for your children and for those who are far off. Who are the ones that are far off? That's us. That's right. Like anybody that's past that is far off. We're 2,000 years later. That's us. Everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. 
And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Now, is he only talking about that generation? No, every generation has been crooked, right? Our generation, if you haven't noticed, is crooked, right? So save yourselves from this crooked generation. That applies to every generation. So those who received the word, received the word, heard the word, believed, right? Were transformed by it were baptized. There it is again. They received it, they believed it, and they were baptized. It wasn't, well, some people were or some people weren't. No, if you received the word and you believe, you were baptized. And, they, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 some souls were baptized and became part of the church. So what must you do before you get baptized? You must repent and believe. So I want to give you just a few things, three particular things, that when we get baptized, that we're acknowledging or saying, okay? So when someone gets baptized, they are first acknowledging their sinfulness and their need of redemption. So when someone comes and says, I want to get baptized, first thing I'll talk to them about is where are you at in your, your understanding of the Lord? You know, do you... Do you think you'll go to heaven when you die? Do you believe in God? And one of the things that we're looking for is do they realize they're a sinner? Do they admit they're a sinner? Because they don't need a Savior until they understand that they're a sinner. They don't see their need for a Savior until they clearly understand that they're a sinner. And so one of the things that when we're saying we're, we're baptizing, we're going to baptize, what do we do? We put them under the water. What did I say earlier? You're recognizing that there's an old man, old person, a hard heart symbolically in us, that needs to die. Needs to die. And so when we put you under the water, we are saying, the old man or the old woman, I'm putting to death. I don't want to be that person anymore. I don't want to, I'm not going to be perfect, but I am saying that because Christ is in me, I don't want to live that way any longer. And we need and we show a need of a redemption. So the, someone who comes and they want to get baptized, they're admitting that they're a sinful person, that they a sinful heart, and they need, and they've come to Christ, and they need redemption, and redemption's found in Christ. And by then, we want to say, well, have you, have you, have you believed? Yes. Are you, are you in Christ? Yes, I am. Okay. And I'll talk to them about multiple things, or Pastor Brian will talk to them about multiple things, about their walk, and then we can say, okay, you're ready. And so when that young man came up to me today, I said, well, we need to get together and talk. And then we talk, we'll, we'll figure it out where you're at, if you have any questions, and then we can set up a time for you to make your public profession. And part of that profession is, is that just by being in there, you're saying, I'm a sinner and I need redemption. And the only place I can find it, the only place it is available is in Christ, right? That's the point. So where do we see this though in scripture? Because John understands, the Apostle John understands that we struggle with this. And so in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, John says this. He says, if we, have, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We have to come and say, no, we're needy. We're sinful. I, I, you would think, well, how would we struggle with that? But I, I know that there are believers even that, that after they come to Christ, there's a certain sect of people out there that say, well, if I become a Christian... I." then I'm sinless now. I don't sin any longer. I'm like, no, that's not at all what the Scripture teaches. In fact, I think John is addressing both the unbeliever and the believer here, and he's saying, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourselves, and the truth is not in you. 
He says, however, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and I love this, and purify us from all unrighteousness. What does that mean? Is if you come to Christ, there's no spot in your life, there's no sin in your life, no, no, you know, no place in your heart anywhere in your mind that Christ doesn't take care of, that he doesn't atone for, that he doesn't take the penalty for. There's no sin in your past. There's nothing in your life, no thing you've done, no thing you've said, no thing you've thought that Christ is not sufficient to remove and to atone for. And that is such a beautiful thing. And so when we get baptized, that's one of the things we're saying. We're saying, I'm dying and I'm resurrected with him. He is taking care of me, right? I am in him, which leads us to the next point. When we get baptized, we are identifying with Christ's death and resurrection. We're identifying with it. We're saying that I need it, and I need to die, and I need him to resurrect me. I need to be a new creation. There's two places I want to take you where Paul talks about this, and I want to be, I want to be very um, clear here. This word baptism is going to be used but Paul is not talking about water baptism. He is talking about a, an immersion in Christ, um, that we're, he, we're consumed with Christ. We've been enveloped in Christ when he uses this term baptism here. It's a picture of ultimate baptism, what happens, but he's not specifically talking about water baptism here. So here's what he says in Romans chapter four, or Romans chapter six, verse four. Now here, he's been talking about that we're justified in Christ, that when, when we believe, we're made right with God, and this, we're enveloped in Christ. It says, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death. It means that, that we have become one with him, we believe, and we're, we're united with him. We're, this is this idea of baptism. And we're united with him by baptism into death. We're dying to ourselves. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. He's saying, look, we're identifying with Christ. We know we need to die. Christ died for us. So we understand that what he's saying is that there's a judgment and I need to die. The old man needs to die and Christ is dying for me. And so I, I want to identify with that death because that's for me. That, that death there is for me. He's dying for me and for you. And I want to also identify with the resurrection. I don't want to be left in the water. I don't want to be left dead, right? I want to be risen. And so we identify that. And I want to have the newness of life. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul puts it a little differently and a little bit more here to it. Two chapter, chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, it says, In him you also... Now, here Paul is talking about Christ. And he says, In him, in Christ, you also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. So this was not a physical circumcision that would happen to men. This was an, a circumcision without hands for anyone. By putting off the body of flesh, so this idea of dying to yourself again, by the circumcision of Christ, right? In fact, we identify with Christ by the death that he dies. We die with him. We die to ourselves. That's this circumcision that's taking place in our heart. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses, right? Which is all of us, right? 
Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talks about it. We were dead in our trespasses, right? But God made us alive. Here he says, but you were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. God makes us alive. He forgives us. And so when we get baptized by water, we're saying that that is what's happened to me spiritually. In my heart, I have associated with Christ. I recognize that he's died for me. I associate, I've been baptized in the death of him and I've been raised with him in the resurrection. I will be at the last days. I've associated with him. I've identified with Christ. And thus, when I get water baptized, I'm just acknowledging the thing that has happened in me that God has done. He has made me alive. Third thing we see that when someone gets baptized, they become members of God's church. They become members of God's church. So you get baptized, especially, and not so much anymore, and I hate to say this, in the early church, um, you got you got. You became a believer, you got baptized, and you were in the church. You were part of the body of Christ. You were um, part of the fellowship. They broke bread together. They ate together. They admonished each other. They encouraged each other. They prayed for each other. They, they laid hands on each other. They prayed for each other. All those things. Today, the church, many in the church in the United States, um, well, many people don't get baptized. People do get baptized, but they really don't become part of the church now, in the, in, the, in the Big C Church, yes, we are becoming a member of the body of Christ by, by acknowledging our faith. But the challenge to that is, is that we should be becoming an intimate part of the body. And that's why, and I know not everybody sees it this way, that's why we believe membership is important. Because when you say, I want to be part of the body of Christ, what does it mean to be part of the fellowship? It means that you're part of the family. It means that when you're struggling, there's going to be family members to help you out. When you're in sin, people are going to be there to help you. People are going to be there to admonish you and love you. People are going to be there to pray for you and to to, to do all those things. So much in the Christian church anymore, we don't want to have anybody in our life. We want to come from our home. We want to come to church on Sunday morning. We want to have a service. We want to enjoy great music, have some Italian coffee. We want to do those things. And we don't want anybody to know about what's going on in our life. And we want to go. And so we want to get baptized because, well, that's what it says. But I really don't want to join the family. I just really want to get baptized because that's what he said. You're missing the point. The point is is that we become part of the family in a very intimate way, and now we walk with each other. And is that simple? No, it is not simple. Is that hard? Yes, it's hard. I can tell you this week, multiple stories, last two weeks, that that we've been walking through some very difficult circumstances with people. Relational issues, divorce issues, sin issues, anxiety issues. Multiple people. But praise God, they're talking about those things. We are partnering and walking with them through those things. They're not alone. Why? Because they are baptized believers. They're members in the church. They've said, hold us accountable. We want the fellowship. We're here to serve them. Pastor Brian and the elder I and elders and I are here to equip you, 
the saints to minister to each other. <laughs> You're to do that. Look, as the church grows, four, three of us, four of us, five of us, whatever you want to say, can't do all of that. You're to come alongside each other and minister to each other. You're to be involved in each other's life. And so when someone comes forward and gets baptized and they say, I'm a believer now, I'm, I'm part of the family, okay, are you welcoming them in? Are you getting to know them? Are you accepting them? Are you coming alongside of them? That doesn't mean that everybody's gonna be best friends with everybody. That's not what I'm saying. But the church has been established for that purpose, one of many purposes, but that is a very big purpose. And much of our individualism in the United States just repels that. One, because I think we can be in our sin and we don't have to be sanctified. We don't have to grow in Christ because no one knows what's going on in my life. And I can just stay the way I am. No one's challenging me. I don't have to, you know, I go on Sunday, I raise my hands a little bit. Ooh, Jesus, good, right? And then you walk out and you do your own thing. You get baptized and then you're in the family. It's like having a child, you know? Um, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, we're not being recorded, so I could say it, but Mr. and Mrs. Smith, just so I keep on track, when they have this baby, that baby's part of that family, right? They're gonna take care of that baby. That baby's gonna interact with the children. There's gonna be accountability there. There's gonna be things. When you get born again and you get baptized, you become part of the church family. That's the picture. Now, if you wanna move from this church family to another church family, that's fine, but then become part of that family. Let them adopt you, whatever, right? But you have to, to be healthy. That's what God wants for the church and for you. That's how he structured it. Okay, you want lunch, I gotta keep going. Let's, um, let's finish up here with the, the, the baptism with Acts chapter, four, uh, chapter two, verse 41, last verse in that thing. So, so who received his word were baptized. For those who received his word were baptized. So let's believe when we get baptized. And notice what it says there. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Added to what? Added to the church, to the family. You just didn't get baptized and then went on your way. No, you were put in something. You were added to the church. Not just some symbolic, cosmic thing that you're now a part of. No, the body of Christ. We can take it all through Scripture and talk about how we should share each other's burdens and love one another and admonish one another because we've been added to the body, right? And look, that's hard work. I get it. I, but we should love one another regardless. We should be able to have conflict and yet still love one another. We should be able to, to love each other and disagree on some things. Like I, I think probably if you all are part of a family somewhere, I'm sure you're not all exactly believe and agree on every little thing in your family, but you love and you work it out. Christ is what bonds us. All right, that's baptism. Let's look at communion real quick. Communion. Let's just dive into the text this morning that we had, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 24 through 25. Paul here, um, to set this up a little bit, um, he's writing to the Corinthian church, this is the first time uh, here in, this is probably around 50 AD, uh, that, that we see communion or the Lord's Supper being celebrated in the church. We always see the, in the Gospels where 
Uh, the Gospels are talking about what happened on that night at the Passover before he was killed. Uh, but here is a picture of where communion is really taking place um, in the church, the new uh, first test, early Testament first church, right? And so here in Corinth, uh, they're, they're, there's a church that have gathered and they're celebrating communion. In that first century, and even in the second century, many churches, like I said earlier, had a fellowship meal ahead of time. They would have a fellowship meal, and then afterwards they would do this. Well, that's what the Corinthians were doing. But they were dishonoring the fellowship meal and dishonoring communion. The rich were coming, and they were gorging themselves. There was drinking. The poor weren't getting anything. There was no proper fellowship. They weren't coming to be one family. They were coming just to eat and to party and have a good time. And so Paul admonishes them, right? I encourage you to study that. That's the eye overview, right? And he gets to this place here in his letter, and now he's, he's wrote them, and he's, he's admonished them for that. And he's just going back to reminding them of what communion is all about and where it came from. And so here we pick it up in verse 23. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Because he's talking about what he delivered to them in the past. That's why they're doing this. That's how they know to do this. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. I just want to stop right there. So I want to point a couple things out about that text. He starts here. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. What's he telling them? He said, look, this wasn't my idea, guys. Communion, Lord's Supper, was not something I came up with. This came from the Lord, and I've delivered it to you. You now are responsible. I've told you how to respect it, what it's for, how to honor it, how to live it out, and I'm reminding you of this responsibility. It didn't come from me. This came from the Lord. And he's putting the weight on them. And then he says that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, this is just a little caveat here. When we read that sentence, what and who do you think of? You probably think of Judas, the night he was betrayed. Judas betrayed him, right? Went to the, went to the Pharisees and said, Jesus is going to be here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Go get him. You know, here's what he's going to be doing. Here's what he's going to be wearing, whatever. And, and that, that would be true. I think that we could broaden that up a little bit. Where were the rest of the disciples that night? Hiding. They left him. They ran. Peter denied him. He was betrayed way more than just by Judas. Yes, Judas, probably not a believer, turned him in, obviously. But these other men, we can deny Christ and still believe. If you're a Christian this morning, if you're a Christ follower, born-again believer, my guess is, is that you've been unfaithful in your walk with him at some points during your life. Probably today, probably tomorrow, at some points. There's selfishness, there's greed, there's sin, there's lust, there's whatever, right? So we're all unfaithful. What's my point here? Is that when we come to communion. One of the things, and this wasn't one of my main points, but one of the things that when we come to communion, one of the things I think it's important for us to realize about ourselves again, once again in baptism, we come realizing that we're a sinner. Like this thing that when I get baptized, it's because I'm a sinner that I'm going to have to be baptized. And I need Jesus. 
when I come to celebrate the Lord's Supper, when, before I partake of, of this bread and this, this, this juice and I observe this thing, the thing that I have to remember is that I am a sinner and only by God's grace has he allowed me to be a partake of him. And I have this. And so when it says on the night he was betrayed, I think we can all say that we, we are part of that betrayal. He, he, he's, he's on the cross. He's been crucified because of your sin and my sin. Because we have not been faithful, right? We've not been faithful. It goes on there in verse 24, and it says, And when he had given thanks, he broke it. Talking about the bread here. He's got one loaf of bread or one piece of bread. It's, he's tearing. It's probably unleavened, so it's probably a, a round, flat type of piece of bread. He's tearing it, right? And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. So what's the, what's the things he's trying to tell them? Jesus was broken for you. So not only um, did you sin and, and re- kind of rebel against him and, and Jesus instituted this, but one of the main purposes of, of communion is to re- for us to remember that Jesus dies for us. That he was broken, he was beaten, he was ridiculed, he was abandoned for us. That should have been us. And so what do we need to do? He's saying, do this in remembrance of me. Remember what I've done. Remember this. And so what's the point? When we come and we celebrate communion, part of it is remembering Christ's sacrifice. I would encourage you throughout your day, when you sin, when you're selfish, when you, uh, some other thing that you do, whatever maybe sin you're struggling with, do you then meditate on the fact that Christ died because of that? I think that's healthy. Like, I think we just need to acknowledge it. Now, I think it should cause us to praise God. Like, we need to be thankful that God did that. It's not, I'm not talking about that you should feel um, Yes, there should be conviction, and if it's an ongoing sin, there should be definitely conviction, and, and you should reach out and, and you know, talk to somebody. But if it's just, you know, you ate the last brownie, you, 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 know, you told a little white lie, which is not good, it's not right, you should be feeling bad about that. But I'm just saying, if there's those type of sins in your life, you need to remember and rejoice that Christ died for you because you could never make it on your own merit. Never make it on your own merit. And so that's what he's saying here. Do this in remembrance of what I've done, right? Do this act so that you will remember what I've done. The broken bread, the cup, the drinking, I've died. The cup represents my blood. It's the new covenant. It's the new covenant I've made with my people that I will take away their sin if they will just believe, trust in me. Verse 26. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So here we have another picture. Not only are, are we to remember what Christ did in the past, but here I think what Paul is reminding us is that Jesus also wants us to look to the future, to that there's going to be, he, he rose from the dead. There is going to be a resurrection. There's going to be a time when he comes again to get his church, to make all things right. 
It's this beautiful thing that, that not only are we to look back and say, oh my gosh, yes, I'm a sinner and this is what he did. No, I'm looking forward and saying, but, but praise God, Jesus is coming again and we're gonna celebrate this new life in heaven with him. A picture of this is found in Isaiah chapter 25. This is a beautiful picture here in Isaiah 25. I think he's talking about this, obviously 700 and some years before Jesus is, is born, but it's a picture of Christ's ultimate return in, in the end, what he'll make all things right. He says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food. Now, all people, he's talking about all his church, his believer. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on his mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and rejoice, and the, and, and the rejoice of his people he will take away, or the reproach, excuse me, the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken, here it is though, and it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God, we have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So not only are we to look back, but we to what? Are to anticipate and long for his return. We're to anticipate and long for his return. When we take communion, it is a reminder that he is coming and that we should be waiting for it. We should be anticipating it. We should be preparing for it. We should be living holy to be ready. We should keep our eyes focused. We should be evangelizing people because we know he's coming. We should long for his return. Verse 27 through 29. Last part of our verse. He goes on and says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup in the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. All right, so he's saying, look. Now remember who he's talking to. He's talking to the, Christ, the church. He's talking to the Corinthians here who have been just partying and doing all the rebellious. They're not really... They're they're just not doing it in a way that honors God. They're not honoring what God has established here in, in, the, in the Lord's Supper, right? And so he says, therefore, I've, I've ex explained what this is and what we're supposed to do with it. It didn't come from me, right? It came from God. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup in the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. It's pretty heavy. He's, he's, he's chastising. He's reminding them this is not good. Let a person examine himself then so that he eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, I want to be clear about something. Paul is not saying that unless you're sinless, you can't take communion. Right? That's not what he's saying. He's saying you need to have reverence for this beautiful thing that God has given us. You need to understand what it's about. You need to be able to make sure that you're looking back and recognizing that Christ has died for us. That should humble us. You should be keeping your eyes focused to anticipate the Lord's return. You should desire that. You should understand all of that. You should realize you're a sinner, right? And you should respect that. And in that process, you should examine your heart. And if you have unconfessed sin in your heart, I would argue that I think what Paul is alluding to is, is that you need to come clean. You need to confess your sin. It doesn't mean that you 
have to be sinless. Not at all. In fact, what God is really doing is says, I want you to come to the table and I want you to partake of me so that you can have joy. You can have this idea of understanding of forgiveness. He wants us to come to the table, but he wants us to understand why we're coming to the table and to respect what he has done and to honor what he has done. And if you're not going to do that, then you should not take it because you will bring judgment upon yourself. And so one of the things we would say here is that if you do not have a personal relationship with Christ, you shouldn't partake of communion. You just shouldn't do that. It's, you don't believe, so it would be dishonoring to do something that you don't believe in, right? You would be making a mockery of it. So this morning, if you don't have a personal relationship with Christ, it's okay. Just let it pass you by. Don't take it. We're not going to judge that. Look, we're thrilled you're here, right? So what do we see here? Not only are we to anticipate uh, and long for his return, but we're to examine our own hearts. So that being said, I'm going to ask some men, uh, the men, to pass out the elements right now. And uh, when you get them, uh, you're going to get a little cracker and you're going to get a little thing of juice. I would just ask that you hold on to them. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, that and, and pray before we take those together. Uh, but as they're doing that, I want to share one more thing that I think uh, is important. And I've talked about it a little bit. I want to just reiterate something about communion. God has created his church, Big C Church, but he also establishes shepherds and elders and pastors and teachers over flocks. He's made us a family. And, and I want to I read this to you because I think this is important as we think about celebrating communion. This is not a lone act that we do by ourselves. Uh, this is something that unites us. Paul says in the earlier chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16 and 17, he says, the cup of blessing that we bless, he was talking about this communion cup, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Now think about that word participation. Is it not a participation? We, we partner, we, we participate together. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Right? So we're participating in his death, in his body, in the work of Christ. And then here's where it goes. It says, because there is one bread. So what's he saying is, is that Jesus refers to himself in the Gospel of John as the what? The bread of life that comes down from heaven. He is the one bread, right? And he says, when he tears the loaf... He's saying, this is my body. He's, he's sharing from one loaf. He's saying, this is for you. I'm for you. I'm for you. I'm for you, right? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body. For we all partake of one bread. We all partake of Christ. And so we're one. This is the idea of communion. It is not something once again, I, I'm not saying I wouldn't give it to somebody that was at home bound. I may do that. But, but the primary purpose when the church gathers is to just show that we're one, right? We all partake of one bread, one loaf. And we are reminding ourselves that we belong to each other, right? We who are many are one body, right? And so what's the point there? is that when we celebrate communion, I believe it's a time to celebrate the fellowship that we have in Christ as a family. 
So when you look around, these are your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is your family. This is your, your Christian family. We are one because of Christ. We are one because of that, right? It's a beautiful picture of what God has done with his son. And I would just share that, that if you look at, and I didn't have time to go into all this today, but if you look into the Old Testament, think about how God's provision is demonstrated in so many ways. In Genesis chapter 3, when God kills an animal, blood is shed and they've been clothed of their sin, God's provision. In the Old Testament, the whole sacrificial system, God is providing. It's a picture of what's coming with Christ. We, we move into um, when, when they get freed out of Egypt, a blood of a, a goat or a, a lamb is killed, right? And it's put on the doorpost, the lentils. And God saves them and protects them and watches over them, frees them from Egypt. Not only that, when they're in the wilderness, does he, how does he provide? He gives them manna from heaven. He provides for them. It's all these things are a picture of Christ. And those are elements that then are realized and once again reviewed and thought back on, on baptism and the Lord's Supper. There's a consistent theme. I would even argue that the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 is pictures of Christ being sufficient for everyone. That he is the thing that feeds people ultimately. He is the thing that will be enough for everybody. And so when we come and we share in communion, that's what we want to remember, that he is sufficient, that we are sinful, he dies for us, we anticipate his return. We long for it. We understand that we're one fellowship and that we need to examine our hearts before we take it. And so I just want to give you just a couple moments to have some quiet time of prayer and then we will celebrate and share communion together. Fathers, we spend time this morning in prayer and reflection. Father, help us to acknowledge our desperate need of you. Father, we see these things in these ordinances of baptism and communion of the Lord's Supper. We see, first and foremost, that it points to a, that, our, that we are sinful, that we need a Savior. And it presents the hope in those, these things that we do that points to Christ. It's a picture of what Christ has, has done for us. And so, Lord, as we come to the table today, first of all, we come as a fellowship. We come as your church, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we ask that when we come, we will remember the past. We remember and never forget the brutal death that you died. But yet, Father, we will understand that it was a death that was necessary because of our sin. And then we will praise you for it. Father, it is the thing that is the cornerstone of our faith. If you have not died and rose from the dead, then we believe in vain. So Father, not only help us to remember, Lord, but help us to anticipate and long for your return. We trust someday, Father, when you return, there will be a beautiful marriage banquet and we will be present at that and you will be 
as you said in Scripture, you will not drink of this wine until you're in the new, in the new, in the new kingdom, Father. And so we thank you that we will be a part of that, that we will be a part of that celebration. We will be the bride that you have prepared for your Son, Lord. And so, Father, help us to examine ourselves this morning. Help us to do this in a way that honors you and glorifies you, that puts you first and foremost. Father, we thank you that you've made this possible for us as we partake of it now. You tell us in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verse 22, it says, while they were eating, Jesus took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave to his disciples saying, take, this is my body, take and eat. Father, as we get ready to take the cup, we realize that this symbolizes that you gave up your life, that you laid down your life in our place a death that we should have been responsible for and given, but that by your great love and mercy, you've laid down your life for those that will come and believe and put their hope and trust in you. There's forgiveness and eternity promised. And so, Lord, as we share this cup, help us to remember the ultimate sacrifice that you made for us. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He said, I tell them the truth. I will not drink it again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Take and drink. Father, I want to thank you for our time together today. Thank you for these beautiful ordinances that you've given us. I pray that as a church family that we will um, honor them, that we will respect them, that we will, um, that we will remember, that we will understand the significance of baptism and the profession of our faith. And Father, that when we come together regularly as a family and we partake of the Lord's Supper, Father, that we will remember that we are a fellowship, that we are a family, and that we are here for one another. Father, that we will honor you with how we seek out to live holy before you. Father, thank you for your church. Thank you for dying for it and establishing it. May we honor you in all these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at Have a blessed day.